Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey, everybody, it's Reed. You normally hear me, but today I brought along Rick Wilson. Rick, tell the good listeners of the Lincoln Project podcast what we need them to do. Join the union.us. The union is a way for folks to be matched to campaigns and causes and candidates around this country to match your specific interests and skills where it can make an enormous difference. Go to jointheunion.us today. We really think it's using the power of matching people's ambitions and their talents with candidates in a way that really makes a difference. Get involved. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Bob Brandon, the president and CEO of the Fair Election Center a national, nonpartisan voting rights and election reform organization whose mission is to use litigation and advocacy to remove barriers to registration and voting. Bob, welcome to the show. Thanks. Nice to be here. So, Bob, today I want to talk about some of the election work that you and your organization are doing going into the midterms, as well as the threats to election officials and poll workers. But first, I want to start with an overview of how you see the 2022 elections as a whole. It's hard to believe, Bob, we're closing in on five months away here. So let's talk about this. So, you know, there's that old trope, right, that I'm sure I've used more than is probably appropriate is there's never been a more important election than this one. But for 2022, that certainly feels like it's absolutely the case. So as you see it and as your organization sees it with, you know, defending our nation's democratic institutions, how do you guys see the midterms coming as a whole? Well, I think you put your finger on it. You know, we saw in 2020 the highest turnout election ever in the midst of a pandemic. You saw all sorts of new and flexible ways for people to be able to make their voice heard. And then this enormous pushback, near insurrection effort to delegitimize basic democracy in our country and the institutions that make voting work. So I think that's part of what's at stake in the 2022 election, that we can, in fact, have an election where our democracy works, where voters cast their ballots, where their ballots are counted, and when the decisions they make are final and accepted. In addition to that, we now are going to have another round of voter suppression laws that will, in some instances, make it harder to vote, make it harder to get a ballot, register, make it harder to cast a ballot, make it harder to run the elections. And so we're going to see a lot of that. And I think It's not like voter suppression laws are new to the country. Our organization has been around for 2006. We've been litigating and pushing back against rules that have limited registration and voting and vote counting, particularly for traditionally disenfranchised communities and for young people. So we're going to see some of that. I also think that whenever politicians who want to maintain the smaller election base to stay in power do the things that they've done in some states, there's a real pushback. And I think we saw it in 2018 and 2020, where in both cases, really across the board, voter turnout was 
at record levels for both first and midterm and then a, a presidential. And a lot of that, I think, was people saying, I'm not going to let you take my vote away. I, if I have to stand in line longer, I'll stand in line longer. If I have to go the extra mile, I'll do that. Well, let me ask you this. You know, your organization's been around since 2006. One, what was the impetus for starting it in the first place? And second, could you ever have imagined 16 years ago that when you started, we would be in this place today? I'm a longtime public interest lawyer. I've worked on issues from tax reform to energy to health care. And pretty much everything that I've worked on comes down to trying to pass policies that are good for the more general public. In order to do that, we need to have more people in the public casting their ballots, making their voices heard. And it occurred to me after 2000 and then 2004 that there was an awful lot of confusion about the process of voting. We saw a lot of problems on election days, obviously the big one on 2000, but let's leave that aside for a minute. There's a lot of issues on election day that occur that either are the result of people who are trying to help folks vote not really knowing the rules, or people themselves not knowing the rules, or election officials making decisions that had unintended consequences or moved a precinct at the last minute and nobody knew, and not have enough privacy booths for people to cast ballots. And primarily, those problems on election day couldn't be solved on election day. So I began to think about, this is a year-round effort. And I started reaching out to people that worked the elections, particularly on the legal side, and said, you know the problems, you know the people in charge, shouldn't this be a year-round issue? And they kind of said, yeah. And I said, would you be willing to help do that? And most of them said, sure, we're kind of underutilized now, just showing up on election day when it's too late. And I asked them if they would do it pro bono, and most of them said yes. And so we set up what was first called, this organization's name was originally the Fair Elections Legal Network. And it was an effort to kind of do year-round work, which is what we continue to do. Our motto is every year, every vote. And in addition to having a group of lawyers who could begin to look at problems and try to get them resolved ahead of time, we also set up a system where we can provide simple, basic information about voting and registering in all 50 states designed for lay people, for organizers, for organizations, for civic groups. Not a lot of legal gobbledygook, but rather something that they could actually use to help advance the cause of fuller participation at the ballot box. I want to go back to something you said about, you know, on Election Day, because I've heard this before, too, is that just looking up here, Bob, that there's something like 3000 counties in the United States, plus parishes, boroughs, independent cities, all the other stuff. So let's call it 3100. Each one of those counties probably has a county clerk or someone who's responsible for chief elections officer. Sometimes they're elected, sometimes they're appointed by county council, whatever the case might be. You know, there might be uniform rules, you know, from a federal level, there might be uniform rules across the state, but it's still a heck of a lot of different people dealing with things. And then you get down to people who are running precincts. You tell me a lot of poll workers are volunteers, you know, organizations like I think the League of Women Voters provide a lot of folks that do that. So when you're talking about this, have you experienced malice of forethought? in the past, or is it mostly people trying to do the best they can? Like, everybody knows when the tidal wave's going to come, and it still surprises everybody when it arrives. Well, I would say from the beginning for us, as we worked with organizations, our main focus has been election officials are the solution, not the problem. Now, having said that, are they under-resourced? Absolutely. Do they have to deal with an onslaught of 
activity on one single day in some cases and try to prepare for that, of course. So we, just like in 2020, in the midst of a pandemic, we should have been praising and uh, patting on the back all those election officials and all those poll workers instead of vilifying them and attacking them. So there's almost 6,000 jurisdictions in the country, believe it or not. And that's because some states have elections. I'll give you an example. Wisconsin has township elections. The elections are run by townships, 1,800 townships in that state, 1,500 in Michigan. So it mounts up. And we know this because, and we can talk about this later, we launched the first ever poll worker recruitment web portal, workelections.org, which helped propel and co-found Power the Polls, which helped deliver about 700,000 people to apply to be poll workers in the midst of the pandemic in 2020. And Bob, are those still active links? Can folks still go there today? Yes, you can go to workelections.org or Power the Polls, and you can put in your address or your county or your zip code, and you'll get to a landing page about what's involved in being a poll worker, the hours, the pay, is there training, is it online, is it in person, et cetera. So let me just interrupt. So everybody listening, you just heard the links that Bob gave you. Go out and apply to be a poll worker. This is an essential job and is an essential job to American democracy. I'm sorry, Bob, go ahead. Yeah. The only caution I would give people is if you're in a state where you're having a primary in a week, don't go <laughs> volunteer to be a poll worker. Now you won't hear back. Right. But we're talking about a major launch of recruiting people starting really almost in the next couple of weeks. There's a few more June primaries, but we'll need help. Election officials will need help. And, you know, sadly, there'll be some people who will be reluctant to go work at the polls because they've heard a lot of attacks and vitriol from people about the folks that help run elections. Uh, I would just say it's the most important thing you can do. It's one of the most rewarding things you can do. You're helping your neighbors vote. And that's what our democracy should be all about. It's a completely nonpartisan effort. And I would encourage, like you just did, your listeners to sign up to be poll workers. We call them our election heroes. So, Bob, but let me ask you this. I mean, there's no such thing in life as a straight line trajectory, unless you're going to draw one on a piece of paper with a ruler. So from 2006 to let's go through 2020, what did that trajectory look like from your perspective as an elections expert, as someone who understands the litigation to ensure that as many people can participate as they can? Were there ups and downs? Was there spikes in these sorts of laws? I mean, obviously in 2021, we saw a great deal of them. I think in 2022, you know, we've seen more. Or was it sort of like it sort of bounced along and then you saw a spike here in the last couple of years? I started this organization in 2006. It was the year of the first photo ID law that was passed in Indiana. And it was the beginning really of after 2004 in the Bush Justice Department, there was a lot of discussion about how do we go after voter fraud? There was a group of acolytes there, some of whom are still around and now have embraced Trump and the big lie. And that was the beginning of when you saw the voting rights section become a voter suppression section. So after that, you began to see some organized efforts to talk about voter fraud really as a way to tee up restrictions on voting. So the voter fraud mantra has been around for quite a while. And since 2006, when I started this organization, every year it gets louder and every year it gets pointed to as an excuse to restrict voting. And as a number of state legislatures and governorships switched particularly after the 2010 election, those efforts, those photo ID laws, those restrictions on absentee ballots, those restrictions on early voting 
really sped up. They became much more prevalent. And in the decade of after the 2010 census and redistricting, which had amazing amounts of gerrymandering, is which we've all know about, there were a lot of changes. And then over the years, it's just become more blatant in terms of what legislators are willing to get away with and say in order to restrict the right to vote. Well, we've also seen that the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act, right, which you'll have to guide me here because I know just enough to be dangerous, is that under the Voting Rights Act, there were certain states, mostly candidly Southern states, the old Confederacy that had to do pre-clearance on new laws related to voting, which was they couldn't just do the kinds of things we've seen in Georgia or Texas or elsewhere. They had to go to the Justice Department and say, this is what we're going to do. And the Justice Department had the authority under the Voting Rights Act to say, yes, proceed, or no, you can't do that. Yes. And in fact, it was not just the old Confederacy, although that was the bulk of it. There were northern states in certain counties that had a history of restrictions. But you're right. What it really did is it required preclearance in all those jurisdictions for any change whatsoever of voting laws. And what that typically did is it just meant there were no voting laws changes that were even tried because they knew they weren't going to go anywhere. And it either had to be approved by the Justice Department or the federal courts. So first, it was a chilling effect in a good way. We're not just not having these laws passed, and then some were blocked. In 2013, the Supreme Court ruled on the Shelby County case, which said that basically the map that allowed for restrictions in these jurisdictions was out of date. You know, the South was no longer what it used to be in terms of anti-voter, anti-black voter, et cetera. And there ought to be a new, different kind of map if you're going to be able to have preclearance. And he and Roberts, who wrote the opinion, invited people in the Congress to come up with a new, quote, formula on what that would look like. And of course, since then, that's never happened because Congress is not going to do anything pro-voter with the filibuster in place. So literally the day after the 2013 decision was announced, North Carolina legislature passed a group of laws on voter suppression, which one of the federal courts hearing the challenges to them said they were written aimed at black voters with precision. Texas did the same thing within a couple of weeks of the decision. It did open the floodgates in many ways in states that had conservative legislatures and governors who wanted to maintain their power by keeping the increasing numbers of constituencies that were not voting for them, who were becoming citizens or becoming voting age. You know, Bob, I don't want to put you in the role of Supreme Court scholar here, but a guy like Roberts, he had to have known when he wrote that opinion and said, throw it back to Congress, which in any normal world, I guess, would be the right thing, that he was effectively opening the floodgates, as you said. Like, he knew Congress wasn't going to get anything done. They haven't got anything done now. So, like, I guess I'm disappointed in it because I don't think I'd ever heard the full explanation of it. But, I mean, at some point, does the court need to sort of be like, first, do no harm, <laughs> right? As opposed to just saying, you know, I've got this conservative ideology, you know, even more strongly now. And we're just going to go do this stuff? You know, there are justices that are much more ideological, I think, than Roberts. So he's been a little more, both an institutionalist in terms of not wanting to completely undermine the credibility of the court. But in this case, I completely disagreed with him, but there was a rationale behind it. And the Congress had just passed the Voting Rights Act, you know, a number of years before that, unanimously in the Senate. And with, a, you know, a couple of dozen negative votes in the House. So, you know, you could argue maybe that, well, we could revisit this. And there was an effort to try to update the Voting Rights Act with a new formula. And 
since the Republicans have been back in and they've been very anti-voter expansion, if they haven't controlled the Congress, they've controlled the filibuster for all intents and purposes. So it hasn't happened. And, you know, it's unfortunate because now we also have other cases that this court has decided which are further limiting the Voting Rights Act. Let me ask you this, because I think to your point, in Texas, you know, where I went to high school and college, you know, Greg Abbott and the legislature there reduced the number of drop boxes available in Texas to one per county. Now, there are 254 counties in Texas. So if you're going to go out to Eagle Pass, not a big deal. First of all, everybody's going to drive 75 or 100 miles to get to anywhere anyway. But in Harris County, right, where there's probably four or five million people, and let's just for argument's sake say off the top of my head, half of those are eligible to be registered voters. That's two and a half million people who all got to go to the same curb and drop off a ballot. I mean, that's not at all equitable. This is the example of the absurdity of some of the laws that are being passed now. And there's similar restrictions now with drop boxes in Georgia and in Florida, where they have to be surveilled 24 hours a day. And then on top of that, Given the success of mail balloting and during the pandemic in a lot of states, you know, people like it. People like voting early. They like being able to vote by mail. And there's efforts to restrict that or make it go away because of this crazy situation where Donald Trump has decided that mail-in ballots don't help him. But the fact of the matter is that everybody likes them and these convenience voting sources makes a lot of sense. But now they're restricting them, and they're even restricting them for people that absolutely need absentee ballots, the disabled. In Florida and Arizona, they've said that if you need help with a ballot and you need help delivering it, you can only get your immediate family member. In the case of Arizona, in the case of Florida, somebody who's not related to a voter can help two other voters. And how do you even track that, though? Like, how do you even do that? Well, you do it by making it a criminal offense, and so people are reluctant to do it. And in some cases, they're now telling people in Florida, if you're going to drop off a piece of absentee mail and you're supposedly a caregiver, you have to give them your ID. Right, which for a lot of folks who serve in that role, probably pretty reluctant to do so, which of course they know. And this is, I think, one thing too, Bob, that's important to understand in what we call modern elections now are the game of small numbers, right? Which is a lot of these elections come down to hundreds of votes, thousands of votes. And so when these laws pass, they don't want everybody not to vote. They just need enough people not to be able to vote to get the decision they want on election day. Right. And the other thing that we haven't really talked about specifically, but there's another major piece of suppression that goes on, which is general confusion. And the confusion happens because people are given misinformation and disinformation, which we see a lot now. Also, you know, if a new law is passed, is it in place for this year or not? Is it in place for next year? If the court blocks it, then what happens? So I know we as an organization do a lot of work doing voter education for people to help them navigate an increasingly complicated and confusing landscape, which voting should not be, but it is, unfortunately. And, you know, we have a partner organization in Florida, Mi Vecino, who does voter registration specifically in black and brown communities. And I believe, Bob, I won't remember the exact law that passed, but when they passed a law specific to the act of registering voters, it was like a lot of county clerks didn't have the right forms, didn't know how the forms worked. So 
there's a level of confusion that's probably natural because a rule has changed, but also are people paying attention? If the state is supposed to provide voter registration cards, are they getting out there? Who's responsible for that? So it has the additive and ultimately cumulative effect of making all of this more difficult. Well, your Florida organization that you mentioned also would have been under part of the law in 2021, which we sued over successfully. We represented a group called the Harriet Tubman Freedom Fighters that does work in the black community and returning citizens. And the law said, if you are going to help somebody register in that circumstance, you have to give them a written statement that says you may not actually get their registration in in time and they may not be able to vote. That was an affirmative requirement of anybody trying to help people in the community register. We went to court. We got a great decision. The legislature actually knocked that language out in 2022 when they passed other bad voter suppression, unfortunately. So we won our particular issue, but other Floridians are going to be suffering, depending on what the courts do, with other restrictions that have been challenged in court. And this idea of confusion, too, which is whether or not it was Trump and mail balloting or, you know, sometimes people will put flyers out, remember to vote Thursday, whatever the case might be. But also, you know, I mean, just as an old, a former Republican, Bob, the thing that was most fascinating, if I was being a political anthropologist, was that Republican operatives like myself perfected the idea of using absentee balloting because it made tracking your voters and contacting voters so much more efficient. And so now you had a situation where like people are like, do I trust it? Do I not trust it? And you even see now in the ongoing Pennsylvania Republican Senate face-off, you now have Dave McCormick suing the state of Pennsylvania to get absentee ballots that weren't properly dated included in the count, which is the height of irony. Right. Well, I think he has a good case because the main part of those ballots are they got delivered on time. So the fact that they didn't have an, a date on when they sent out, you can't claim they got sent after the election because they got they got in on time. But you're right. You know, and that's been the process. And, you know, it, it's funny that you watch now Republican legislatures in Florida get rid of the permanent registration list, which allowed people to stay registered for two elections. Now they have to re-register every election. And in Arizona, where they're threatening to get rid of the permanent voter registration list, which has been active for decades, and try to do it retroactively, which I think they will not succeed on. But of course, Bob, the whole idea here is, is that most people, because they're regular human beings, they're not like you and I who look at this stuff all day, every day, are not going to be aware of this. Because I assume that the state will not do a corresponding public information campaign that lets everybody know that they need to re-register every two years. Right. So the burden is going to be on the communities who want to make sure that their members are, in fact, registered and are going to be able to vote. I, you know, the other thing I would just say is, I mentioned at the beginning that we have a very big program called the Campus Vote Project, which works with institutions of higher education to make sure that they, as schools, colleges, and universities, teach the basics of democracy to their students, to make sure their students know how to register and can register when they're interacting with the school, understand what's at stake on a ballot in terms of just who makes decisions, you know, the local officials, the state officials, et cetera, and then to make sure that they understand what they need to do to vote and whether they need an ID. And if they're a first-time voter, they all need IDs. But that's really important because those are voters more confused than most because they're often first-time voters. They're sometimes away from home and they can't ask their parents what to do in terms of what the rules are. So it's really important. And we think, you know, we're investing heavily in the work of both 
helping students understand and students that are across the board, community college students that are in the community, minority serving institutions that serve lots of students of color and other students to make sure that they have the basic information they need to be fully participants in the democracy that we have and that we need to keep and they need to help us keep it. I want to stay on the the youth vote for a second, Bob. So you're doing this good work on campus to ensure that kids know how to vote, where to vote, what they need to vote. What else is it y'all are doing on the youth vote front? Because, you know, I'm a Generation Xer. We're sandwiched in between everybody, right? Our parents are boomers. Some of us have kids that are Gen Z. There's the millennials. Everybody's bigger than us. The number of young Americans is growing every year. So what are some of the things that you and your organization do to ensure that these folks participate? So first of all, we have student voting guides for all 50 states. And then we hire what we call democracy fellows, usually two students on every campus. They work with the administration, they work with the faculty, and they help get the word out to fellow students in different clubs or organizations about things like National Voter Registration Day on campus, or they might lobby to get a polling place on campus. We have a program now with MTV where we're in uh, four states, we're trying to get 10 additional schools who may have on-campus voting places for election day, but not for early voting. On-campus voting obviously is a huge deal because it makes a big difference if you can vote on campus as opposed to go find someplace downtown to go vote. So we do that. So it's a lot of it is education. And then finally, our democracy fellows, we invest a lot in just leadership development. We make sure they understand the history of voting rights in the country and how they can be organizers and how they can make a difference in the community at the school and, frankly, the community when they leave school where they all find themselves. And what's your sense of working with these kids? I'm amazed at the quality and interest of people that we're obviously finding people that are interested in getting involved and learning more. But we have an awful lot of 18, 19 year olds who have never really done any of this before. There are a lot of immigrant communities that, you know, sort of shun activism. They kind of say, keep your head down, do well in school, get a good job and don't make waves. And, you know, we're finding students from those very same communities who want to make waves which is great. It makes me optimistic about the future. No, we need more American waves, that's for sure. So, Bob, I want to turn to one last subject before I let you go. And this is something that we at the Lincoln Project have been thinking about for several months and working with some organizations, a lot of veterans organizations, which is the when someone actually lines up to cast a ballot, when someone's sitting at that table checking people in, it seems like we are in a place where If violence occurs at a polling place or if there's disruption at a polling place, we shouldn't be surprised. So give us a sense of what you've learned in any research, what you're concerned about and what we should be thinking about, how to ensure that hopefully that none of that happens, but that we can mitigate anything that does. You know, I do think, number one, we have to continue to make sure people know what punishment they would be facing if they interfere with somebody's right to vote. The Justice Department put out a memo, you know, last year. They need to do much more than just put out the memo. And I think it's tricky. It's a balancing act because you do not want people to not go and vote because they heard there could be some problem at the polls. At the same time, election officials need to be prepared. They need to know what the rules are. I was just in Clark County, Nevada, and, you know, they've already met with police, but they don't want police around during the election. And they've told all their poll workers, if there's a problem, you contact, you know, the captain in the precinct first. They contact the county clerk's office. And usually you can kind of, you know, 
take care of the problem. It's somebody yelling at somebody or whatever. But beyond that, you want to modulate any kind of activity. I know we heard a lot about this when Trump's told everybody to go to the polls and watch for all the cheating in 2020. And very little of that, almost none of that was materialized. There were some people yelling and screaming 100 feet away from the polling places, which I guess they have a right to do. But if they look like they're intimidating people in the line, then they don't. They can get moved back. And I do think it's really important for a lot of communities not to see police presence. That would be the worst thing that we could do. It's a fine line between security and intimidation, whether or not it's intentional. Correct. You know, we even tell people who want to be poll watchers to not load up, you know, not have somebody walks to the polls. They don't need 25 people to ask them if they need help. You know, you need to be there to help, but you need to not bother people when they're trying to vote. So, Bob, before we let you go, you know, for the folks that listen, what are a couple of things that you can recommend that make sure that your ballot is counted, your friend's ballots are counted? Give us some advice. Give us a silver lining here to take us out. So when you register to vote, and if you're already registered, it's very easy in almost every state to go go online and check your registration and make sure it's up to date. If you've moved, in many places, you have to update your registration. You can't do it at the polling place unless you have same-day registration. So number one, be careful about your registration, making sure it's right. Anybody who wants to can go to our fairelectioncenter.org site and see a voting guide that gives you registration details, deadlines. And it also gives you the voting information about early voting and election day voting and IDs you might need. If you're doing a registration drive in your community, you can go to our website and look for the voter registration drive guides, which will tell you what rules you have to follow if you're helping other people register. And then in general, I think the most important thing is we need to encourage everybody to vote. There's strength in numbers. We want a democracy that reflects the populations that we have, and the fewer people that vote, the worse it is. And that's where other countries and civilizations have spiraled into authoritarian governments and worse. So we need to make our voices heard. You got to go out and vote. Well, amen to that, Bob. And I want to say thank you to you and, and your folks for doing all you're doing. Before I let you go, where can everybody find out more about you or your organization online? Well, fairelectioncenter.org is our main website. You can also go to campusvoteproject.org to learn a little bit more about the campus program. And workelections.org is our poll worker piece. We are a partner and we are driving the data behind what's called Power the Polls, which will be the really big effort this year. Your listeners will hear about that in the weeks to come. We will do all we can to ensure that everybody on our platforms knows about it, hears about it, signs up. As always, everybody, you can find me on social media at Reed Galen on Twitter. Bob Brandon, I want to thank you for joining me today and everybody else. We'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, Follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. 
All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For the Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.